So as we start this series in, in the book, the uh, New Testament letter book of Revelation, I want to mention a couple things that you, know, you probably may not be aware of, but I think it's easy to grasp or understand. Um, our time in the Word tonight, and as we go through this, like any time we're going through the Word um, in this format, it'll be twofold. So I'll speak from the role of a pastor as well as a teacher. So as a teacher, traveling verse by verse, you know, I want you to, to grasp and retain and, and, and understand and take hold of the content and the detail as we see within the verses studied. So I really like to break it down and get into more of the minute detail as a teacher. As a pastor, I have a responsibility, first and foremost, actually, to shepherd the flock of God. First Peter chapter 5, verse 2 tells me that. So I'll try to find this balance where there'll be times I'll make a, an emphasis or a reference or maybe an exhortation from the text that is pastoral more so than the outline a teacher would focus upon. Does that make sense? You know, when you're push, pushing through a specific text as a teacher, you know, I, I love doing it, but I also keep switching hats, pastor, teacher. You know, I don't physically do it, but you get it. So where we're at in Revelation 1, one-fourth of the Bible is prophecy. Clearly, it's God's desire that his people know his heart and his eternal plan. It's pretty fascinating to me that God, compelled by love, chose, uh, chose to reveal his word to us. I hope we understand. He wasn't obligated. It wasn't like he had to do it. Out of love, he reveals to you and me, to his children, his eternal plan, what's coming and what's happening and what has been and what will be. So we are going to start in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And this helps us to frame it into the time we live in a little bit and to catch the context. I want to read the first 11 verses. And from there, we will then pray and, and start in this letter called Revelation. We read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in the darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the dark, night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us, who are of the day, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and hope, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. This text obviously addresses those who have a relationship with Jesus Christ and are born again, children of light, and those who have not yet entered into that relationship do not have salvation. And so what he's addressing is this time is coming. That's why now this age, this, this time that we live in, the single most important question we have to resolve is who is Jesus Christ? Not doctrinally, not just historically, but very personally. Jesus said to his disciples, who do the people say that I am? His disciples responded, uh, some think that you're one of the old prophets. Uh, some maybe say that John the Baptist has come back from the dead. It's you, you're John. And, and, and as they're answering, Jesus, I believe, paused and looked at the eyes and the face of those followers that he dearly loved and the people around him that maybe been listening in, and he said, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? See, it went from a public 
question, to a very uh, private question right to them. Who do you say Jesus is? See, we're going through a fascinating book, and it's going to reveal a lot of things to come. But the first thing we're going to see, as we even picked up on Sunday, it reveals your need for a salvation relationship, a saving knowledge, a true relationship with Jesus Christ, who is King of kings and Lord of lords. We're fascinated. I think we're all fascinated about what's going to come in the end days, in the last days, in the great tribulation, and all these things to come. But let's be very careful that we're not looking for the Antichrist when we don't know Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, thank you for this time together tonight. I pray, Lord, for each one of us. We've came here tonight in the very depth of our heart, in the very core of our being, we came here seeking to know you, Jesus. Some of us have entered into that relationship because of your grace. We've received your forgiveness by simply believing that you are God, that you died for our sins, and that you forgive us of those sins. And so, Lord, we would ask you to help us to keep seeking you, to be humble before you, and to receive from you. And anyone who has not entered into that relationship, you're you're not confident, you're not certain of your salvation, of the forgiveness that Jesus offers you. I would ask you just, just to begin tonight in a very simple and very practical, but really the only way by which you can begin Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And so, Lord, I would encourage you to lead us. For those that have not entered in, the prayer would be simple. Your prayer would be, Jesus, I I don't even know all this stuff. I just, I do know I need forgiveness. I, I, I know I'm guilty of many wrongdoings. And so by faith, I would ask you to, to help me. I, I would make this statement in my heart that, you are God. You, you died and, and rose again from the dead. You conquered death and hell. And you offer this life to me. And so I ask for it. I agree. I need your forgiveness. Jesus, lead me in this new life. Give me the faith to follow. Give me the strength to cut loose from things I know I need to cut loose from. May it be according to your presence, according to your power for your glory. God, that's the cry of our hearts the very cry of our hearts, that you would lead us and teach us, bring about true growth in our lives. And so, Lord, we just offer to you this night, believing that you will walk us through your word, revealing the hope that you have and the peace that comes from knowing you. In your beautiful name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So as we begin our teaching, and we are now actually, are you guys ready? Revelation 1. <laughs> so, I need to lay, out, lay down the foundation because it's uh, essential. There's so many different views and different opinions about Scripture, about different chapters, different books of the Bible. And this particular book is obviously not excluded in that sense of confusion about things. So I want to give you where we're going to come from. This is the teaching, the viewpoint, if you would. I'll just say it this way. We're going to take a pre-tribulation, pre-millennial rapture perspective. The tribulation is a seven-year period the Bible speaks of, of great tribulation. It's a time when God's wrath is poured out on a Christ-rejecting world. It's a specific block of time. It is yet to take place. So taking the position that that has not happened because the context of those, when that is revealed, it's just, there's just no way it's already happened. You see what I'm saying? So we believe that the pre-tribulation view and the pre-millennial view. Now the millennium is a thousand year reign and rule of Jesus before the ju- final judgment upon humanity. That's a specific time spoken of in the, in the book we're going to be reading, Revelation and so that period hasn't taken place. Now, I mention that because there's several different views. And in trying to maintain a pastoral perspective and a teacher perspective, I realized, you know, I'm not going to get into all the different views. Quite honestly, we don't have time for it. You can, if you're really fascinated by that stuff, I encourage you, maybe even challenge you, dig into it. Uh, in 1997, I took my first formal class on the book of Revelation 
notebooks right here from 1997. And I had to, 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 had to really work through these different positions. There was a book called, um, oh gosh, I think it's The Rapture Question. It's a really good book. It addresses all the different, the three different perspectives and different things. And so I encourage you, if you're really fascinated with that, but many of us are like, I, I'm, already, I'm, I'm, I'm where you're already talking about. That's where I want to view from. I want to move, go, go forward from. The position I've presented is a literal interpretation which holds that predominantly a future view of the majority of the verses in the book of Revelation. And we're going to see some of that as we look at here in chapter 1. So what that means is, basically I'll just say it this way, especially after chapter 4, verse 1, it enters into something that's yet to take place. It's a futuristic, which sounds weird, but it's just a future view because those things have not yet happened. So we'll build our viewpoint upon the very outline or timeline, so to speak, that is presented in these first four chapters. And to help kind of make sure we have the same foundation, I want to start with that. The outline um, or timeline is given specifically in three verses. You could actually narrow it down to one. But the first verse in Revelation 1, verse 1, it's the revelation which means the unveiling, the teaching of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants. God has given this to show his servants things that will take place. Now, catch the chronology. John, as we're going to see, a a servant of God, one of the brethren like you and I, was on the island of Patmos, functionally incarcerated for his faith, so he has a vision. A vision is when God opens up um, your ability to see something that's kind of outside this realm, if you would, or to see even in the future, perhaps the past. And, and we know in this age that God does use you know, visions and dreams for the young and the old. That he'll, he'll teach, use that as a teaching approach. But anyway, so these things are going to take place. John's here. He has this vision, this encounter with the living God. And he's told, listen, I want you to show things, people, show people things that are going to take place. So that's from that very moment that this starts, this direction. So that's important to know. He also says in verse 11 that Jesus says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book, not what you saw. So this is still this, this experience, this encounter that God is bringing his truth through this agent, as we've seen on Sunday, this, this man named John. What you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. So John, the servant, was invited to write that that he would see. This would be just at that very moment of the vision and throughout this revealing. Now that leads us to the third key point, which is the essential key, the critical code, if you would. If you're going to have accurate, consistent understanding of this book and other end-time prophecies that are within the Bible, we need to understand verse 19. Verse 19 says of chapter 1, Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. So, the things which you have seen. Up to this point in 1 verse 19, so he's already got, you know, pen ready, so to speak. And so he's to write the things he's seen, the things which are. So what Jesus is about to show John concerning the church. Now, he speaks of the the church, and, and you'll see it in other places we've already touched on this on Sunday, seven is, speaks of completeness, the complete church. You notice there's the listing the seven churches, and we'll touch on some of the details in regards to that later. But following verse 19, it shifts. In verse 20, and then on through chapters 2 and 3, what takes place? We have the letters to the churches. So we have that which has taken place, that which he's seen, and then the things which are, that's right at that moment. And then after the address to the churches, there in chapter 2 and 3, it brings us up to chapter 4, verse 1. After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, 
and I will show you things which must take place after this. Are, are you tracking with me? So we have this this vision, this experience, this word of God in the very presence of God to John. He's now to write that down, and he's to, to be aware of the things which are the church age, the church time. And then after these things, well, after what? Well, after what was in the end of chapter 3, or actually what was in chapters 2 and 3, the church age. After that, and it's really important because this helps us see as you look at it, you know, the church is not mentioned in the next few chapters for quite some time after chapter 4, verse 1, because the church is, is removed, if you would, and brought up to be with him. And, and that, you know, most people, honestly, when you look at it in consideration of other prophetic passages, it's obvious, it seems obvious that the church is raptured between the end of chapter 3 and the start of chapter 4. So if we miss this, then we'll struggle understanding where we are during the Great Tribulation period. You'll read chapters like the end of Matthew, and you'll try to fit yourself in there because there's things there that are interesting Israel. But if we're not aware that we're out, we're above, we're with the Lord, then we're going to try to, how does this interpret? How does this fit? We'll be confused also concerning Israel and the church even as we read some of the Old Testament passages, which we looked into last week, if you want to catch last week's message for Wednesday night, we did an end times review, pulling out of some passages in the Old Testament, and to see what God is saying to Israel, and what's happening in this converging of prophetic declarations and passages from the Old Testament, showing that many prophecies are being fulfilled. The primary one that we see as a a hinge point where everything shifted was when Israel became a nation in a day. In 1948, they were assimilated and recognized. They had assimilated for some time. But miraculously, seriously, in 1948, they become a nation. And from the very moment they become a nation, they've been attacked. From the very beginning. And never in history has a, a people group reassembled on the land they were on and become a nation. Never. And, and so God, that's one of those, we, we see that, and then we see what's going to happen with Gog and Magog and these attacks from the north. And see, we see that, but if you don't realize you're not there, you know, you're gonna, it's going to be confusing. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not setting a chronology. Some of these things can happen, a couple of these things can happen prior to the rapture. But the key things, the, the, the tough things, will be out. We'll also miss this struggle, understanding, you know, um, the prophecies, they just won't make sense. The chronology will be misapplied. So does it make, let me make sure you got it real simple. Because this is going to be a key point as we go through this entire letter. The things which are is where we are. The things which will be will be after we, as, as the church of God, as his bride, we are removed because as we seem to start, we are not appointed to wrath. And Revelation chapter 6 tells us that the wrath of the Lamb, as these judgments are being unveiled in Revelation chapter 6, it says the wrath of the Lamb has begun. Basically, who can withstand it? Who can, who can survive it? So, do you see the correlation? The church will be removed, and this is the reason I hold strong to this position of the pre-tribulation rapture. He calls you, as a child of God, his bride. And we're told in Revelation 6... That this is the wrath of the Lamb that we're reading about. Are we saying that he will pour his wrath out on his bride? When we know in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he has said, you are not appointed to wrath. Do you see, it's, it's almost, sometimes it's too simple. But it's, what helps you in that and seeing that is that knowing and considering what the Bible says about the nature of God and the chronology, how things unfold and what's going to take place. So, with that... I want to read verses 1 through 8 of Revelation. I know we covered that on Sunday. That's the challenge I have every week, is connecting the dots without spending too much time on overlap. In other words, we already covered it on Sunday. Let's, it's not, I don't want to be redundant, but we have to connect it as well. So let's just begin. Let's read. I'll read to you uh, Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 1 through verse 8. And I'll make a brief comment about that. The, the revelation or the unveiling of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants 
things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches. Remember, seven speaks of completion, not just the the geographic location. The seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Verse 7. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. In each of our letters in the Bible, the New Testament letters really shine. Um, we have an introduction, you know, a little bit about God, the, the agent God's writing through, John, Peter, Paul. So we have an introduction, and then it kind of gets into what's going on. And notice if we consider these first eight verses as a form of introduction, we're reminded about who Jesus Christ is. The emphasis, as you can see, is on the person of Jesus Christ. Because that's what this whole letter is about. It's about the person, Jesus Christ, about who he is and his glory. We get a glimpse in this particular letter that we don't get anywhere else in Scripture. We get detail about his majesty. We get details about his, his authority, his rule in heaven even. You know, the Gospels give us a beautiful documentation and, and account of his glory, really, even here on earth. But it's, it's a glory in, in temporal, a beautiful eternal glory, but you see how it was packaged and, and we see it. But here we're going to get glimpses and descriptions and we're going to scratch our head and say, what's that look like? I don't even know what he's talking about because it's so out of this world. And so I think it's awesome because you, know, you don't find anywhere in scripture a description of Jesus in a physical temporal form. Do you know that? Do you remember in, in the Gospel of Mark where he said that Jesus was 5'11", weighed 170? <laughs> you don't get it. You know, these... these uh, trying to figure out a way to say this without being an idiot. Um, so we have these paintings, of, and it actually came out of the iconoclastic era, icons. We have these paintings, and, and you have the background of him glowing. You know, and it actually wasn't meant to be depicting his actual... Uh, look to the human eye, it was meant to depict, you know, glory. But you've seen the pictures, right? Or you've seen others that have have painted him more in, you know, uh, light brown hair, mild complexion, little hint of blonde almost. He was basically like a Palestinian, an Israeli. You seen much of those? Most of them have pretty dark hair. They're, they're, They're kind of identifiable, so to speak. But it says of Jesus... He made himself of no reputation. There was nothing, it says in Isaiah, about his appearance that would stand out. That we would go, oh, there he is. You know, you walk along the you know, streets with Jesus at night. Pretty much who, you know who which one it is. If he's glowing, it's not hard to figure out. But guess what? He made himself of no reputation. And we don't have any record. I think, don't you think that interesting? We have very little record, even of the apostles, of what they physically looked like. I think a good consideration is because we are not staying here. We're passing through here. And what we'll know about each other when we're in heaven will not be in relation to our physical appearance. It'll be in in relation to our eternal state. It'll be something that we don't even pick up now, but we will pick up then. So anyway, we see here in these first eight verses, I believe a key part for entering into this phenomenal book is remembering Jesus is on the throne. Jesus is our savior. Jesus loves all humanity. Because we're going to read some things, you're like, wow, that's intense. But remember what I said to start. God will pour his wrath out on a Christ-rejecting world. Some people will say, I don't want God. 
I don't need him. They'll remove themselves from any presence of good. They'll demand that no good is around them. And they will sadly will spend eternity in that state. And our heart, our desire as we read through this, and I know it, is we just think, man, I, how do I share with my neighbor, with my family, with those who appear they don't have an interest in God, who maybe even stay, they, they don't want anything to do with God. We're in the last days, in the last moments. How do we deal with this? So I want you to be, just really be sensitive to the Spirit, be open, you know, because we should have that mindset all the time, but we're seeing some things that cause us to really be more aware and alert, like Jesus said. Verse 9, I, John, I'm going to read to you verse 20 with you. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with the garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with the golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as it refi- if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. Verse 16. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the, shining, or the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Write the things which you have seen and the things which, you, which are and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw on my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. So let's slip right back over to verse 9. And we'll draw some uh, observation, if we could, uh, through this. I found it interesting, hopefully I know you see it too, it's not I, John, the apostle whom Jesus loved. There's no emphasis on authority, there's not anything that he's putting to somehow imply or indicate that the word of God needs to come through a mediator. Jesus is the mediator. And he uses a term, very interesting, speaking of companion, he says, both your brother and companion... It speaks of equality, closeness, a comrade in arms. He goes on to say, I'm, a, I'm a, your brother, I'm, I'm tight with you. He, remember, he's in exile on the island of Patmos in the Aegean Sea. Um, I looked up, I didn't have time to put together a, a kind of a slideshow of it. You can look it up yourself. But Patmos, when you look at it, it's very minimal vegetation. The water's kind of cool if you're free not if you're in captivity. So it's got a beautiful look, but there's very little vegetation. It's mountains. From an aerial view, it looks like it's just splattered. It's just a variation. It's, just, it's not like you would go, well, that wouldn't be a bad place to live. It's rocky, minimal vegetation. He was exiled there. By, I think it's Domitian, the Roman ruler, because he um, was so verbal, so vocal about his faith in Christ that when he was taken into custody, Domitian decided this is perfect. He's the one that I will, I will, I will, I will put him to death. Because John was very adamant. He hadn't had this vision yet, but he was adamant that he would see the Lord return. And so Domitian said, well, we'll do this. So he gathered a bunch of people. He took and, and basically got a big pot of oil, boiling oil, and he boiled John. So he puts him into this boiling oil to basically show that he 
because he thought of himself as a god, as the ruler of the world. And so he was going to remove this man, John. Well, it didn't kill him. He didn't die. He continued to sing praises to the Lord. And church history shows that he was then taken to the island of Patmos because he didn't die when he was boiled in oil. He'll spend time on the island of Patmos. A new Roman ruler will come into authority. He'll be released, and church history holds. He goes back and teaches at Ephesus until his last days. He was roughly around 95, 96 years old when what we're reading here is taking place. He's a tough old codger, that's what I'm saying. Because he's like out of focus and he's staying the course and, you know, interesting. But anyway, he, he, I mentioned that because most of the people at this time of the writing would have been familiar with John. They, they, you know, we read a lot about Paul, but they would also have been familiar, especially as he continued to move around and teach and they heard what happened to him and all this stuff. And he says, I'm a, I'm a comrade in arms in tribulation, in struggles, in trials. In John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus said to John and to all the other disciples and preserved for you and I, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. John lived that out. He experienced it. His, his trials and tribulations, as you see there from verse 9, were because he spoke the word of God by the way he lived and by what he said. I believe it was evident in two ways, two fashions, like our lives as well. He lived it in such a way people knew it was true, and when they asked him about it, he brought clarity to the, the reason that he lived the way he did. And we've all heard it, maybe experienced it, some of us even lived it, where we live one way on Sunday as we are stirred and encouraged and we're learning things, but we didn't live the same way on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And some even lived, spent a quite contrary life of partying on Friday and then back to church on Sunday until we realized what I'm saying on Sunday is not being seen on Monday. And there's an element that that, you know, if you live that way, you won't be bothered. Seriously, nobody will bother you because you're a hypocrite, who cares? You can't even figure out who you are, let alone how, what you should say. So, you know, but when you start living with a sense of consistency, with a sense of like, I believe this. I believe this to be true. And your life starts changing because you, you're in submission to God. And as your life is changing because your personal choices between you and the living God, then you're going to run into conflict with the things you used to do. Because you realize, I don't want to do it. It's not because the new thought about religion, the new idea about God changed you. It's because you surrendered to the living God and are born again, born in the Spirit. And you don't want to do what you used to do because you have a loving relationship with the living God. And so because you have a loving relationship, you're like, you know what? I don't, I don't want to. You know, we went back to the old life, many of us. We tried to live in a way of a witness or somehow connecting with some of the people and we realized after a while, I can't do both. I can't try to please them and, and everything. I, I'm having a hard time being one, let alone two people. And we made a choice. You know, I want to get to know God. And what happens is people then notice there's a different reason you're different. And so anyway, I want to encourage you. I believe that's what we see in the early church. We know that there was the contrary as well because much of the New Testament letters are about false teaching and false living. And it gives instruction how to be living the right way. John is a man who we know he was on Patmos because of the word of God and for the testimony, the speaking of Jesus Christ. Now in verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. Uh, in the spirit on the Lord's day, many different, well not many, a few different ways people try to explain that. You know, I, he could have very well been just like in the spirit, literally not in the distractions of his, you know, because you could, have you ever been in a situation where you're spirit-minded and you're really, your mental, your consciousness is toward God, but you ache, your back hurts, your widget arm on your maniform is tweaked and your elbow doesn't work and you're hurting. And so it's hard to be in the spirit, right? When you have them ailments and aches, you're like, oh man, I'm just, okay, back, I'm just focus. Well, I think what, what he's referring to, in essence, it his mind was upon the Lord. He was seeking the Lord. And I think the Lord met him at that point. And I hope you guys have had type of encounters similar to what I'm describing. 
where the pain, the ache, the distractions of this life, the carnal confusion that's around you, is, is like a wind blows that cloud off to the side, and you have a few moments. You have a brief time where you're like, you're just, you're just, you're just totally focused on God. It's like, uh, real quickly, I had this experience. I had uh, pneumonia many years ago, and the pain was really intense, and you know, it, was the, it was really tough. I had to literally sleep with a pillow on my chest and fold it over in a chair, and it just would not relieve. I couldn't get relief of the pain, and you know, Kim, we're, we have two kids, and we're young in Christ, and, you know, I'm in the back bedroom, and I can't move, and the pain's intense. If I walk down the hallway, it took me, I slept for eight hours, going 30 feet. I'm in the one night, I'm in the, um, in the back bedroom, Kim's in on the couch praying and crying, and I'm back just trying to live, and there was a point where I just started singing worship songs. And I started singing them, and she thought I was actually calling for help, that I, that I needed something. I couldn't hardly speak. But she come in, and she's seen, I didn't know she'd come in and seen this, but I'm just, I got my hands up. I'm singing just full volume, full volume. Uh, there was, uh, you know, and I, I didn't even realize she'd come in. She told me about it, you know, because she went back, and she was pretty excited, because now she realized, that, you know, hey, maybe he's not going to die after all, you know. <laughs> And, but I mention it because that's, I, I liken that to a, a time that in, the, in the spirit when there's just God that gives you just a, a knowledge of his presence and a work he wants to accomplish in you, for you, and through you. So I, I look at that. I don't try to figure out whether it was Saturday or Sunday. I think it was Sunday. I think the Lord's Day is referred to as Sunday in the New Testament, but you can hold on to the Saturday Sabbath theory if you want. And he says he heard a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And then he tells to write in a book about these, this letter that's going to go out to these seven churches. But notice what verse 12 says. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. So, are you, are you tracking with me on this? So, I was, in the, I was praying, I was in the Spirit, it's just something happened, and then there's this loud voice as of a trumpet. You're like, just frozen, he's like, what is that? And it says that he, he, he heard this, 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 this sound like a trumpet. It was so uh, impactful. He hears this saying, which we read in verse 11, then I turned. See, it wasn't like, what's that? It's like such a moment with such a, an experience to his natural senses, his, his hearing. He's like, you know, I don't think he was in awe of fear, but in total awe. And Jesus describes, he tells him who it is and what John would do. And then he turned to see who it is. You know, put yourself there because that's why I believe we're given this detail. And he turned and the voice spoke with him. So you know, Jesus is the one that in, uh, initiated this whole thing. Jesus is the one that was with him. Jesus is the one that's speaking to him. And he's reminding him, even in those times of awe when there's uncertainty... He continues to speak to us. He continues to illuminate his word and bring it to our hearts. John is experiencing that. And then he says, you know, I saw seven golden lampstands. And and in the midst of the seven lampstands, now he's going to describe what the words already told us. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. But now he's going to give us a description that we haven't seen in Scripture of Jesus. This one that was in the midst of the lampstands. Like the Son of Man. He's conveying, it's, it's almost like an angel or something. I have no reference point to say what he's like. The wording there to a, to a Jewish man speaks of God. The Son of Man. Okay, so here's, here's this, this, this appearance of Jesus. Now, don't you find it interesting? John walked with Jesus. John was among those who seen him after he was resurrected. He, he engaged with him. He talked with him. But there's something beautiful and even unique in this heavenly realm, in this heavenly body, which he's seeing something. He's identifying him, but at the same time, he's in awe of him in a different way. His head and his, oh, well, I'm just going to back up. Clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. I wonder if that means that... White like wool, maybe gray hair ain't so bad in heaven. <laughs> so white like wool, it says that he, 
his eyes like a flame of fire. Interesting that in this realm, when there's demonic possession on a non-believer or imagery of the devil, what color are the eyes? Always, always red, always as fire. Because Satan is the great imitator. Satan is the one who can transform himself into an angel of light. It doesn't always have to look like the guy in Hollywood with the pitchfork and the red funky tail and the horns on his head. But rather, very convincing. And I think you'll see it throughout. you see him you know, try to mimic and mock the Trinity, the nature of God. Uh, why do you think, at least consider, that the reason you're a target in this spiritual realm is because of how God's made you. You are made in the image and likeness of God. As a born-again Christian, you are you're born of the Spirit. So now you have this, this triunity element, so to speak, in your life, body, soul, and spirit, reminding the enemy of your soul of the trinity, the triunity of God. You're created as an image and likeness, and so it's just, there's, it's, it makes sense that we're the object of Satan's you know, agitation. But remember, he who is in you is greater than he who is in this world. So we're in this fight. We're dealing with this tribulation. But here's Jesus appearing to John and, hope, and it's preserved for you and I to realize he is in control. He is on the throne. His head and hair, you know, speaking of majesty and authority, his eyes like a flame of fire. And it says that, let me catch it here. Um, verse 15. His feet were like brass as it was refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. Well, that's weird. Seriously, when you read that, do you go, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Most people walk around with a sword in their mouth. It just is weird. You read it at first, and that's why this is a challenging book sometimes, is we, we kind of get hung up on some of this imagery. But for this imagery, so we could maybe have a better grasp of it, let me read to you Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart, and there's no creature hidden from his sight, for all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So we see this two-edged sword in Scripture speaking of the Word of God, that it cuts through everything. It cuts through our excuses. It cuts through our complaints. It cuts through all the reasons for many people who don't want to be a Christian. I don't want to be a Christian because I know people who say they're Christians and they're hypocrites and jerks and well, one more won't hurt. You know, I mean, it's like, but just stop about that logic. Because some people say that, right? You've heard it. You know, it's like, well, that's person. And they're right. They're, they have a, many non-believers have a better assessment of character than Christians. Christians are willfully naive. And they don't want to accept the truth about bad characters. Many non-believers have a better assessment. That's, you know, my personal opinion. Don't write me letters on it. But... The truth is, it's, it's a very shallow logic, because the, the Word of God cuts through all these explanations. Well, I'm not going to be a Christian because that guy's bad and that guy's bad. So Jesus is bad? Well, I'm not saying that. Okay, so your car breaks down. You take it to a mechanic. Mechanic is not a good mechanic. So you say, from now on, I'm never taking a car to a mechanic. Really? Isn't that the same logic? That doesn't make sense because we've got to realize and be honest with ourselves. The one thing that the world needs, every one of us need, is a very personal, intimate assessment of ourselves. A Christian led by the Holy Spirit. Because most of us are not honest with ourselves. And so we have reasons why we don't do that or participate in that way or give in that fashion. But the word of God goes, just cuts right through it cuts right through it. So here we have this, this imagery, and it's not meant to be seen as this random, you know, head remover. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's meant as the word of God. Because when I first read this, I'm like, what is this? Why is this? You know, it didn't make sense. And, and then it, it's like, you know, as you dig in and see what's being conveyed, it, it starts making sense. So as we move from 
there we see in verse 17, John speaking. Now John has um, spoken to, uh, Jesus had sent uh, an angel to his servant John, we see there in verse 1. We now have him realizing and describing Jesus. And it says in verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. So John is, in essence, if you would, responding to Jesus by his statements, his claims, you know, what John, what Jesus has said, and how he allows John to worship his feet, at his feet, it shows to you and me one more time that Jesus is God. If you, if you want to turn real quick, or just, I can just read it to you as well. In Revelation 22, the last chapter, it reads in verse 8. This is towards the end of all that, you know, we, 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 you know it's going to be in the, from verse chapter 1 to 22. In verse 8, now I, John, saw and heard these things. And when I heard, I saw and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Then he said to me, see that you do not do that. For I am your fellow servant and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book, worship God. See, he was corrected when he inadvertently fell at the feet of the angel at the end of this vision. And he says, no, 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 no. Go back to chapter 1. Worship Jesus and Jesus only. I want to mention one other thing. I overlooked it as we are going through. But you'll notice in verse 13, in the midst of the seven lampstands, we read through the entire chapter. The seven lampstands, we're told in verse 20, are the uh, seven churches. So we see in verse 13, in the midst of these seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man. We've already looked at it, and I give comment on that that is Jesus. And I want you to realize and hold on to that. In the midst of the church, Jesus is always in the midst of the church, among his children. He's revealing to John things that you and I can't even hardly process, let alone even imagine. And he, he chose to bless John. And John told us it wasn't because I'm an apostle, because I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a companion a brother in the tribulation, in the struggles. And that, that tribulation there, don't, get, don't misunderstand. It's not a capital T. It's not of a titled event. It's an experience and an ongoing thing that we read in John 16, verse 33, that Jesus said would take place. These ongoing struggles and trials. Just the word in English, tribulation, sometimes people get kind of confused and they misapply the great tribulation into the, where the word is just a simple the word tribulations, which speaks of trials. So I just want to encourage you with that thought is that Jesus is always in the midst of the church, among his children, speaking to them. John, I don't think, was sitting on the other end of the Patmos like, man, I wish I could have a vision. That would get me through the day. I just, I think he was just learning to love the Lord and going through his, his heartache and, you know, be real. He'd been boiled in oil. Either God gave him an amazing, phenomenal, miraculous uh, experience where the sensitivity of his skin was not affected or perhaps there was lingering effects. Paul said of himself, three times I prayed, God, take this thorn in the flesh, this affliction on my body. Three times he asked for him to take it away. And the Lord said, you know, I love you. I love you, Paul. And some of the things you've experienced, lest you be puffed up with pride, I'm going to leave this particular affliction with you. And Paul summarized by saying, okay, okay. If I have an affliction or something that's going to be with me, I will glory in my weakness that the power of Christ will rest upon me. For when I am weak, I rely, I rely on his strength. So we know there's physical infirmities. I think John had many. At 96 years old, there's no reason to believe that he didn't creak, sound like a bowl of Rice Krispies when he moved around. And so here he's still serving the Lord, still seeking the Lord. Not focused on his infirmities and difficulties and afflictions. It's like, I'm just going to do the same thing I've been doing. I'm going to love God. I'm going to fulfill my responsibilities. And someday this will end and I'll be home. It's kind of a great mindset. Verse 18. As we've seen Jesus previously even speak of his, who he is. and I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. 
amen. Basically, it's so be it. It's not goodbye like we use it so often. It's so be it. So it is. It's a declaration. And I have the keys of Hades and death. Hades, translated hell, it literally speaks of the unseen realm. Um, Some would define it as the place of departed souls. There's a couple of different passages in the New Testament you can dig into and read there. But what I want to emphasize is what he says, I am he, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. We've seen Sunday that he is the resurrection and the life. He is the only one who has died, come back to life, and did not die again. Scripture records a couple cases, maybe even three, of people who have died and been brought back to life, but they then passed away, as we would say. So we see that, and then notice he says, I'm alive, and I have the keys of the abuso, or keys of Hades and death. See, he's conquered death and hell. Very important to realize that. It's not like we die, and then we don't die again, but we're held in this eternal holding tank. We're just the neutral zone, like a purgatory or something, where just, you just hang there for nothing, no, no, nothing really horrible, nothing really good for eternity. No, he's conquered death and hell. And it's really important to realize that because nobody has ever fulfilled that statement except Jesus himself. And it's only God who could do that, to live eternally, to conquer the greatest fear of all humanity. If you're not, if you're not born again and you're not afraid of death, death, you're pretty dumb. Seriously, I don't mean to be, you know, well, yeah, I do. It's just, you, you think about it. I, 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 no fear. You can buy a t-shirt that says that and wear a hat to go with it and you know, show your medical record to show how beat up you are. Why no fear? Well, I'm not afraid of anything. You know, ashes, ashes, dust to dust. You know what my mentality used to be 35, 40 years ago? Hey, I came from the dust. I returned to the dust. I'm going to play in the dust. Look, I raced motocross and dirt bikes and did things, you know. So I had this mindset, that must be how it is. Until I had a couple <laughs> near-death experiences at the, you know, triggered by adrenaline and stupidity of the camera. So it was like, I don't think I'm going to do that again. Well, why not? I, I, don't, I don't like the possible results of it. Because now I'm really, I'm not going to dust. And then later, I become a Christian because I see these truths and I start realizing, yeah, you, I should have been afraid of death. When I have no ticket for eternity, I have no destination, I have no determination, I have it. it's not like I'm just going to end up somewhere. My refusal, my resistance to receive Christ was a decision to reject Christ. And that decision, no matter how you know, adrenaline-based or recreation-based or arrogant-based it is, will still leave me in the same place. And, and, I, and I realized, man, I, I, he conquered death and hell. That, to me, is so liberating it is so freeing to remember, I don't know how and why things are in this world. I don't understand why some people suffer, some people go through intense tragedy and pain. I don't understand it. But I know he's conquered death and hell. I, I know he has the answers for all these things. He is the living God, the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega. We already covered verse 19, the key to uh, reading and interpreting and staying on track in this particular letter. Verse 20 the mystery of the seven stars which you saw on my right hand, the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels, or it can be, a star is a messenger in the original language in the um, Greek, and so um, many hold it to be the messengers or the pastors of various churches. And so it's, he explains what it is, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. We're not going to dig into chapter 2, but I am going to give you an overview when we get into chapter 2 in the churches, there's four views of this particular section, chapter 2 and chapter 3, that are worth pondering. And then what, what they are is there's the first view, and, and it's not like you have to pick one through four multiple choice. I, I think they all have application and consideration. It speaks of the four contemporary churches gathering at locations mentioned that were in practice, in, in attendance, so to speak, in play at the time of this vision. So that's the, the contemporary application. There's also one to consider because we live 
2,000 years removed from beyond this particular time, over 2,000. There's the historical view of the churches from the first generation to the present time. Let me uh, share with you, I'll give you the first one. I mentioned this particular um, notebook. It's, as I said, it was from 1997 when I went through this study the first time 25 years ago. And I've learned to keep notes, you know, especially back in the non-digital days. Now it's a lot easier. It's easy to carry them, transfer them, update them, blah, blah, blah. But let me give you a kind of a timeline. And this first reference will be by, um, you know, actual calendar reference. Ephesus um, would apply to the, to the first to second century. Smyrna would go from 200 to 313 approximately. Pergamos, 313 to 600. Thyatira, 600 to 1400 AD. Sardis, 1400 to 1700. Philadelphia, 1700 to 1900. And Laodicea would be 1900 to present. So let me give you another way to see it. This is from uh, uh, Ricky Ryan's uh, book, He Who Has Let He Who Has Ears to Hear. Ephesus, the first one will be referred to the Church of First Love, the Apostolic Church from Pentecost to 90 AD. Smyrna, the persecuted church, Diocletian to Constantine. Pergamos, the church under imperial favor, the state church under Constantine. If you remember your history, you dig into that. Thyatira, the papal church, which is the church during the Dark Ages. The reason it was the Dark Ages, the word of God was withheld. Would not, they wouldn't allow it to go forward. They kept it in a language that was unknown to the common man. And Anyway, that's another sidebar. Uh, Sardis, the Reformation church, which is Protestantism, uh, the 16th and 17th centuries. The Philadelphia, you know, that age would be the missionary church. It's a period ushered in by the Puritan movement. That's the one I was mentioning coming up to the 1900s. And Laodicea is the rejected church, the church of the final apostasy. And many, maybe you've heard songs and such that speak of living in Laodicea, the age that we live in, which I think is ac- accurate because we still have an evangelical movement from the last church age carrying over, but then there's also um, the lukewarm church, which is very evident in the world today, and especially in more systematic, uh, structured, historical, um, different um, ways, I guess you could look at the, the church as overall. So we also have, you know, this historical view. We had the contemporary view at the time of John's writing, the historical view, and then the instruction for churches in every age of church history. So as we break this down in the days to come or in the meetings to come, we're going to see the specific instructions to each church. Realize, though, it's not meant to be just for the geographic church. Is meant to be for the church. And we know that, I would suggest, because back in chapter 1, we've seen it spoke of it to the church as plural, not just one church, to this message to Ephesus, this to, to Smyrna, this one to you know, Pergamos or Thyatira, or you, you get it. So there's an application. We'll see each one of those. Now here's another one I want you to consider as we go through it, obviously not tonight. There's an individual view to be received and applied by every believer throughout the history of the church until the rapture. So as you see things that are like maybe Ephesus, and you read about, yeah, historically the church did have kind of a loveless attitude. They did things, but they'd left their first love. And then you could see even, you know, maybe contemporarily there's groups within the body of Christ, gatherings that have left the first love. They're, they're, you can see it by their compliance and their alliance with, with governments and contemporary issues. But let's also allow the Holy Spirit to minister to us and say, yeah, and there's times that you've left your first love, that you have actually been entertaining and been more like this than like this, because it's all very uh, instructive, and we've seen even from 1 Thessalonians, we're to be comforted by the Word of God, by the truth revealed, and by the presence of the Lord. So, let's pray. God, thank you for your presence tonight. Thank you as you teach us these things. May we embrace them. May we hold tight to them. And Lord, may we be taught by them, as your word even speaks in chapter 1, verse 1, Lord, that we would take hold of these things, 
that we would read them in verse 3, that we would receive the blessing you have for us as we would walk according to the truth. I pray, God, you would speak to each one of us about our salvation, the assurance of it or the need of it, whichever it may be, that you, God, would do what only you can do, and that's lead us closer to you, convict our hearts, comfort us, direct us, correct us, protect us, Lord. We just thank you. Do a mighty work in our lives and knit us together for your purposes, for your glory, and for our joy. In your beautiful name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, next week, we'll, on Sunday, we'll be picking up in chapter 2, looking at the church in Ephesus.